Welcome to BA in Science. I'm Maggie. That's Brenna. Hi. And we can't wait to tell you all about our badass human who also happened to be a scientist. Now, today we're taking on an inventor, which we haven't done very many of because I think that they're difficult to write about from a science perspective sometimes. Because mm -hmm. well, I have the science this week. And the last time I did an inventor science was Hetty Lamar, mm -hmm. season one. And that was actually no big deal because she only kind of really invented the one thing. Um, mm -hmm. Our dude today invented like all the things. So it's hard. A lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. How was the bio? Difficult because there's not a ton of information on him. Cool. But, you know, make it work. Yeah, we'll do our best. There's some good tea, so... Well, that's good. I'm always up for tea. That's, that's the best. I know. Well, let's deal with our weekly business. You can check us out on Facebook and Instagram at BA and science. That's where we post pics, source info, fun stuff, information, whatever, uh, for this episode and all our others. You can also email us at BA and science at gmail.com. If you have something that you want to tell us, uh, please, wherever you listen, remember to rate, review, favorite, subscribe, share, like, whatever all the things so that other people can find us easier also do not forget about our awesome patreon there are going to be all kinds of bonus episodes coming there uh, for the end of the season this season here so you're not going to want to miss those because they're very fun you can find a link to our patreon on facebook and instagram or you can just go to patreon and search ba in science uh, when you become a patron of our show don't forget you get access to that bonus content as well as other like early access to our regular episodes all that kind of stuff so you don't want to miss out so go do it um, okay addendum time do we have any addendums this week i do not i do oh all right i think i've mentioned it mm, i want to say i've mentioned it on our regular show not in the bonus episodes on patreon that i'm reading a book or I've been reading a book called Molecules of Murder by yes. John, John Emsley. Yes. And today I happen to be reading about ep like epinephrine and atropine and, you know, a lot of those stimulants and stuff. Mm -hmm. And there was a woman who murdered a bunch of people in a VA hospital oh, um, by giving them epinephrine because um, your body excretes it really quickly. So unless you're looking for unusually high levels, mm -hmm. it's kind of hard to detect it because your body also makes it. I mean, it yeah. makes adrenaline naturally and epinephrine is like the synthetic version of it anyway. Yeah. But I was reading about it and she murdered like 50 people, guys. Angel of death. Anyway, I know who you're talking about. She's yeah. Like, the angel of death. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. So, but when I was reading it, it mentioned propranolol because Ooh. propranolol is like, what you give somebody who's had too much epinephrine because remember propranolol like slows down your heart rate yeah so if you've been given to so some guy like accidentally they accidentally this one was an accident uh like i don't know thirty thousand milligrams some Whoa. stupid number of epinephrine yeah it was a, it was a big whoops um but they give propranolol as like the I don't want to say antidote but like the the countermeasure, the countermeasure. for mm -hmm. you know too much epinephrine or adrenaline Interesting. And we talked about propranolol when we talked about James Light Black. And I never really talked about it in terms of other uses for it. We just talked about kind of like medicinally, but I never really, I didn't really read too much about it. And I didn't really think too much about it until I was reading this chapter on uh, the angel of death. Mm -hmm. And they mentioned propranolol. So I was like, oh, I know what that is. And I know who discovered, or, you know, invented it. So I thought that was kind of cool. Very cool. 
I love it. If you guys out there come across something that we talk about, that's the kind of thing we want you to post on our Facebook or send us an email about, and like we can talk about it in an addenda. Because as you're listening to this, you're going to encounter the things we talk about sometimes in weird yeah. ways. It'll come up in weird ways. So when it yeah. happens, share that with us. We like to hear about it. So, and we'll like, like I said, the addendum spot is the perfect place for us to share those moments. So, yeah. Cause I find so many things now where I'm just like, oh, I I've heard of that. Oh, I know about that. I've, you know, we can't, you know, because we've been all over the board with so much. Yeah. So it's really fun when I read stuff that I'm like, oh, I know what that is. And I, sure. I just feel smart. Yeah. I feel like how our dad must feel most of the time with the whole Etruscan thing. Yeah. Just like knowing things, just knowing, you stuff. know, Inex inexplicably just, knowing stuff, just inexplicably knowing things all mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. I'm starting to feel like that's, that's what dad must feel like all the time. Yeah. You know, I, I like it. It's a, it's a feeling that I enjoy. So if you also listeners enjoy that feeling, you too can have it. Thanks to this show. And you know, the course of your regular life. Yeah, for sure. So that's what I got as my addendum. Nice. Good addendum. Yeah, I don't have any. So uh right. I think we should take a break and then get started with um our guide this week because I actually have some funny stories to tell. All right. So this episode should be a nice change from our last one, wherein we talked about horrifying and strange. Mm -hmm. stuff and all that so yeah. so let's jump right in what's our quote and who are we talking about because you have the bio all right so the quote is he is a great favorite in our house he is very diverting also in conversation there is a singular simplicity in his manners he speaks his opinion upon all subjects and about all persons with the most undisguised freedom he does not though a foreigner want words but he arranges and pronounces them very comically he is humbly grateful for all civilities that are shown him, but is warmly and honestly resentful for the least slight. Oh, so that quote is from Fanny Burney, who is a novelist. Um, and that is about our BA this week, who is John Joseph Merlin, who we've collectively decided to call JJ because, yes. you know, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So I have the biography, as you mentioned. So let's talk about JJ. All right, good. JJ was born September 6, 1735 in Uy, which is in the province of Ligue, which is in Belgium today. But at okay. the time it was part of the Holy Roman Empire. Data mind. I mentioned that for you. Thank Maggie. you. Yeah. Um, so, but Belgian, he's Belgian. Okay. Okay. He was born to parents Max Joseph, a blacksmith, and Marie Anne Levassois who probably wasn't allowed to have a job. Let's be honest. I mean, it was the I 1700s. Mean, so, yeah. you know, She's, if she, she had, she a, had job. a job, she was a mom. She was a yeah, baby yeah. machine. Yeah. They had, uh, they married in 1732. Um, and JJ was their third child. Like they got married in 1732. He was born 1735 and he was their third kid. Thoughts yeah. and prayers to all the moms <laughs> who have three children under three. Because three in no. three years. Cause that's <laughs> no. crazy. God bless Marianne. Okay. Um, so in total, Max and Marianne had six children, but when JJ was eight, his mom died. Oh, yeah. Um, so that left Max with a lot of children and no yeah. mom. Oh. So he did what any rational man in the 18th century would do. And he remarried. So they marry someone to take care of his kids. <laughs> Doy. Yeah. One source I read though, made a comment that he remarried quote, at least once. 
so I don't know I don't know if there's more to that story or not I didn't really get details on like who his new wife was or anything like that but I do know that JJ had a half-brother named Charles from Max's remarriage okay so he has siblings but then he has his half-brother Charles I'll mention his half-brother later on too so just mentioning him now um I really don't have this was a tough bio for me because I really don't have too much information about his early life beyond that we know that his family kind of moved around a bit but basically we are going to pick things back up when he is 19 and he is in Paris. So he was at the Paris Academy of Sciences from 1754 to 1760. And following that, he became the technical advisor to the new Spanish ambassador to London, which I don't really even know how that happened, to be honest. Like, I don't know. I really don't know. Um, But I would like to attempt to read the name of said Spanish ambassador that I found in one source because um, I mean I'll probably butcher most of this but this name is pretty intense and not really related to JJ at all other than he worked for him but I just have to go with this name okay it's like 300 Spanish names so here we go Juan Joaquin Anastasio Pignatelli de Aragon y Moncayo Conde de Fuentes wow yeah I don't even know a lot of names there's a lot of nouns, names. Anyway, I just kind of had, you know, had fun with the fact that he had 7,000 names. Oh, yeah, it's fancy. Yeah. Okay. So that puts it, JJ though in London. Again, have no idea how, have no idea why. Don't even know what he studied. I mean, he was at the Academy of Sciences. So, you know, science, I guess. Well, I mean, his dad was a blacksmith. So ba- based on what he ends up doing later. Yeah. I don't know. You know, I don't know. So he's in London and that's pretty much where he will stay for the rest of his life from what I can tell. So in 1766, he starts working for James Cox as a chief, one source I read said mechanician, but I feel yeah, I'll like- Yeah, t- I'm, t- I'm gonna talk about it. I'll go into it. Okay, cause like, is that a mechanic? Can we just say a mechanic? Cause that word's no, a cause it's not a mechanic. Okay. Well, he helped do inventy things and, you know, then he spends his life doing inventy things and Maggie will talk all about that. But I do want to mention one aspect of his work that Maggie won't talk about because I needed things to talk about. Let's be honest. Well, and this is better for you because it's actually kind of significantly separate from the other stuff he does. Yeah. So JJ made instruments and actually invented his own instruments as well. So for example, in 17... September 1774, he obtained a patent for a pianoforte stop that could be fitted to a harpsichord. Now, I love music and I usually love going down rabbit holes, but I just kind of didn't have the energy to learn how a pianoforte stop thingy worked. But what I basically got from it is it made a combo harpsichord pianoforte instrument or a Harps of Forte. I'm trademarking that name, y'all. Yeah, uh, it's yours now. I totally made that up, but I'm going to call it the Harps, Harps of Forte. Forte. Okay. The Harps of Forte. Um, because I really piano don't... chord doesn't sound yeah, like something different. Fun. That's already a thing. Harps yeah. of Forte sounds fun. Um, so just tuck that in your satchel because we'll talk about the Harps of Forte more. Uh, you can look it up. I mean, I don't, I don't really 100% understand because I don't really know the difference between, I mean, I very very generally know the difference between a harpsichord and a pianoforte so I don't anyway yeah it's I mean there was a lot of some overlap in instruments like keyed keyboard instruments 
during yeah. this time. So, yeah. I mean, it's not, it's a little bit nebulous for me too. So, I don't know. Um, so he also played around with string instruments in April, 1778. It was written um, that he had a new invented fiddle with five strings and a new improvement to violin design described as a very simple contrivance by which the pegs cannot get loose and will help the tuning with a wonderful facility, safety, and accuracy. So as a violinist, I have a couple of thoughts on that. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, five strings is going to be a no. <laughs> Absolutely not. Violins, it's all stringed, you know, violin, violas, cellos, upright bass. Mm -hmm. those traditional stringed instruments have four strings and that is how it should be. Let me okay. start with that. That's period. Okay. Second, I don't know what kind of peg slippage was really an issue <laughs> because mine, I, you need them to slip so that they'll tune. So, I mean, but maybe not too much. I don't know. They, mine don't slip though. Like, and I, I played on a lot of instruments and I've helped people tune other. It's like, it doesn't. Well, I don't know they, what they look like in the 1700s. Okay. Well, I mean, very I similar, guess. very similar to violins that we have today. Yeah, matter of fact, but I don't, this, and I this don't is gonna, know. This is going to come up later. I wish that inventors didn't just like come up with something without giving us any background as to how they got there, <laughs> why they think it's great how they actually developed it. They're just like, no, f file this patent. That'd be great, thanks. That's not <laughs> helpful. I'm just reporting what I have learned about his instrument stuff. Yes. Okay. okay. Uh, now through all this time, JJ does start running with quite a fashionable crowd. So people like Johann Christian Bach. Oh, Danny Bernie. Yeah. Fanny Burney, the woman who gave us our quote today, mm -hmm. was a novelist. Um, and also Fanny Burney was keeper of the robes to George III's wife. Really? Yeah. She's fancy. She is fancy. Um, Samuel Johnson. Wasn't he the guy that did the dictionary? Yeah. <laughs> and there's that, there's the very, very iconic painting of him. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, Thomas Gainsborough. Um, he was paintings. Yeah, who, yeah, who was a painter, and he was painted by Thomas Gainsborough. Um, Thomas Gainsborough, I guess, is, like, one of the most important British artists of, like, the 18th century. In its possibly, possibly of all time. Like, he, he's yeah, probably yeah. top 10 of all time British painters. Like, yeah, he's, he's like pretty a, big deal. Pretty big deal. Um, and even I read Franz Josef Haydn, mm -hmm. according to one source. So he's got friends in not low places. It's true. They're fancy. They're okay. Fancy. So while he's inventing, he does get a bit of a reputation as an eccentric, which I can't really tell you all of the best stuff because I think we'll hear more about that when Maggie talks about some of his inventions. One of them. But I will say that he had a habit of showing up at like, you know, balls and masquerades and such of the like, because, you know, he was popular enough, like he got invited because he was running with these fancy crowds. Um, he would show up to promote himself and his inventions in like weird ways, in costumes, mm -hmm. etc. So I hope we get some good stories because I kind of avoided reading them because I think they're ridiculous. They are ridiculous. And I have two of them. Actually, okay, great. That I'm going to show. Well, three technically. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Um, other than that, and outside of his inventing life stuff, whatever, there's really not a whole lot in his life to talk about, but there are two notable events um, that are both legal cases, actually. Hmm. 
So we're going to talk a little bit about his legal cases because that's about as much as I could find on him outside of inventing things. I mean, don't feel bad because I'm going to spend a significant portion of my time talking about British patent law in the 1700s. Oh, wow. That'll be scintillating. Yes, is the word. Yeah, that's the word you're looking for. I'm just kidding. Remind me to pour a glass of wine before we start that. Okay. So, okay, let's talk about his two different cases. One, he's the defendant and one, he's the plaintiff. So here's a bit of background on the first case. In 1776, JJ commissioned Thomas Nickel Jr., who I'm just calling Jr. We got too many names. Okay, Jr. Jr.'s going to build him a big old house. Okay. Okay, fast forward April 16th, 1779. So we're three years out from that. And Thomas Nichol Sr., just who I'm calling Sr., Sr. lodged a bill of complaint against J.J. in the Court of Chancery about that commission. So his story goes like this. The house was almost complete, the house that Jr. was building. But at the last second, J.J. backed out and like categorically refused to complete the purchase. J.J. said it was because the house wasn't finished and ready for him to move into at Michaelmas in 1777, which was apparently like the agreed upon time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michaelmas, I think, is like September. Yeah, I think. So. Yeah, I think that's right. Because they always have like the Michaelmas term in like Oxford and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, senior claimed that J.J.'s fussiness about the entire house was what caused so many delays. So, for example, he had to have Malm's stock bricks. And I have no idea what that is, but some fancy, fancy old bricks that he had to have, which were in short supply. So it's basically like he just was really particular about all the things he wanted, the materials he wanted in his house. And it was like short supply. So that's why it took so long is what okay. senior is saying. Okay? okay. Like he also said, you know, any, any boards that had any knot in them whatsoever could not be laid in main rooms in the house. Do you know how many boards probably have knots in them? All of them? A lot of them. Anyway, yeah. Okay, JJ's story, however, goes like this. I commissioned this house to be built by Michaelmas 1777. Um, And then he also mentioned that he wanted the house to be done by the time he married. And more on that later, because that's interesting. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, Junior, he says that Junior didn't have enough credit and he had too many projects. And so JJ's construction would get put off for weeks at a time. Like it would just, nobody would be working on his house for weeks at a time. And that's why the house wasn't done on time. So then he refused to pay because he had to go lease another house because they didn't complete it on time. Oh, hmm, that's a tangle. Yeah. Um, And if you're wondering why Senior is filing against JJ instead of Junior, Junior actually went bankrupt in spring 1778. So his business transferred basically over to his dad. So senior is the one who actually completes the project. Got it. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So what's super fun about this case is that there's no record of judgment. Come on. At least not one that anyone has located. So we don't exactly know what the outcome was. But there was some blurb in the London Gazette around this time that talked about the forced sale of things related to Junior's bankruptcy, mm-hmm. um, including a house that is assumed to be the one built for JJ, which seems to me to indicate that he did not have to buy the house or didn't have to, you know, I don't know, like pay out or anything. Yeah. Um, because if he had paid for it, he would have lived in it, which he didn't. And if he had to pay damages, then I don't know, that probably would have saved the guy from bankrupt. I don't know if it would have saved. Anyway, we don't really know, but it feels like it was a win for JJ. 
it feels like it feels like it wasn't a win for the other guy for sure yeah it feels like junior yeah. did not win for sure but also maybe he wasn't good at managing his money i don't know who jj no junior, junior. well i i would think not i i mean i would think not but you know i don't know i mean i think this interesting because since the 18th century house contractors have not been able to finish a job on time Oh my gosh, I was going to point that out. I was just going to say, looks like since at least the 1700s, yeah, house contractors have been saying, well, you know, there were delays and couldn't get this in on time and, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. If you're a house yeah. contractor out there, clearly you can tell that both Brenna and I have been burned by them before. So, I mean, although on my guy's defense who did our porch last year, we kind of had like, supply chain issues you know oh that's different i'm talking about when the world when all the world is normal oh yeah well i haven't had that direct experience but i have we did we did growing up yes for sure yeah i'm sure that i'm sure that mom and dad are reminiscing about that i don't know if reminiscing is the white right word (laughs) the contractor living having a ptsd moment feeling triggered about (laughs) the contractor that literally just disappeared yeah yeah. Disappearing contractor. Don't be that guy. People don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. Come on. Um, okay. So I don't like, I don't even know if we have an idea of when that whole thing was even resolved in terms of like, because the suit was filed in 17, what did I say, 1779. But like I don't even know like that Gazette article or whatever. Like, I don't mm-hmm. even know when that was published. So like I don't know how long that dragged out. Okay. But in the same year in 1779. Um, when he was, you know, the defendant in this case, JJ also decides to start some legal drama of his own, okay. which brings up a case um, called Merlin versus Selson. Oh. On November 29th, 1779, JJ lodged a bill of complaint against Ephraim Selson with the Court of Chancery, claiming that Ephraim was making and selling copies of that patented harpsiforte, you know, oh. without his knowledge or consent. Oh, that's a big deal. And we don't know why, but I guess things, I don't really know a lot about the legal system in the 1700s in Britain, but I think it it pertains to patents because I do. Well, no, I don't know. He, he files in the court. Oh, he has this bill of complaint in the court of chancery. Somehow the case ends up in the court of King's bench, which feels like a bigger deal. Well, um, was it? Okay, I don't know. I'm anyway, talk, it ends I'm up talk in the, about it. Okay, great. It ends up in the court of King's Bench, and the case was heard on February 22nd, 1781. Okay. Okay, so Salson responded to the charges um, like this, this charge that he was making the harps of forte and selling it and whatever. Mm-hmm. He is just a poor guy who entered into a seven-year contract with JJ to serve basically as like a journeyman, I guess, and work with JJ. And the contract had pay details and like pay increase in intervals over time and so forth. He claimed that JJ picked a fight about something that was, you know, silly. And then used that as an excuse to fire him after just one year out of the seven-year contract. Oh, man. So then he was like begging JJ, like, please honor this contract. I need it for my family. And JJ refused. And now poor Selson is left destitute with no way to provide for his family. Like, that's his story. Okay. He also said. That's true. That's awful. He also said that he did not gain the knowledge or expertise to imitate the harps of Forte in that year of working for JJ. Like within that year, like there's no way he would have learned what he needed to learn to like be able to go make his own harps of Fortes and sell them or whatever. Okay. 
But then he also adds that he had been a harpsichord maker for 15 years. And for 10 of those years, he had been a master harpsichord maker who had made pianofortes, other instruments, etc. So then somehow it became his claim. This is very strange to me because then somehow his claim became, well, JJ hired me to get my knowledge and expertise. And once he had that, then he fired me. And then finally, finally, wait, finally, the harpsichorte, he said, wasn't like that special, according to to Selson, right? That like there were similar instruments being made before the harpsichorte and it wasn't like, that special or something i guess okay so i don't know what to make of all of this or think of all this because i mean either you're a poor guy like if you were a master harpsichord maker for 15 no 10 years why would you rent yourself out as a journeyman like i don't like know journeyman that style that doesn't make sense to me this doesn't make sense. You know what I mean? So I don't, I didn't, I did not deep dive about the guy named Ephraim Selson because I don't know. So it's a little, I don't know. This is convoluted, I guess, to me. Anyway, everything about British legal anything oh during gosh. this time is a spicy disaster of a dumpster fire. <laughs> it is a nightmare. And you will understand why I'm saying that when we get to my section. Okay. Well, pet. so I like, I also probably would know more, but I got, it got kind of tedious reading about all these legal proceedings. And like, yeah. I should have just had mom read it and be like, mom, make this make sense. Cause yes, mom totally we, was going to be, have, we should have hired her as a researcher for this. We one should have brought in our legal expert <laughs> um, to explain it. Cause it was like, blah, blah, blah. I don't, I don't know. They brought in experts. I, I don't know. Bottom line, let's just get, let's just skip. Bottom line, Lord Mansfield, who is the guy here in the case, is he a judge, magistrate? What do they call them? It depends on what court you were in, but you could call him, we would equate him to a judge. Okay, so the judge. Barrister is what they call their lawyers, right? Correct. And no, it, he wouldn't have been a barrister. Yeah, no, no. And um, I think anyway. magistrate wouldn't, uh, it's complicated. Oh, I, okay, well, anyway, Lord Mansfield awarded a shilling to JJ. That's you heard that. You heard that. Okay. You know, keep it. Okay. But this wasn't the most important issue to JJ. I don't think like from what I could tell, it was like, what was more important for JJ was that the benefit of the ruling was basically like, he did have a valid claim that people couldn't make his harps a forte. So Selson would have to knock it off. I think it was more about proving like I have the patented rights. No one can make this and sell it as my invention kind of thing. I guess that's like what I got out of it. And this went to the King's bench court of the King's bench. Yes. Okay. That's, that is important because, um, okay. So without ruining my section, I think I can tell you what was going on here. Okay. So the court of the King's bench was okay. So when the English were setting up what became English common law, which was no matter what jurisdiction you were in, the punishments were all the same, basically. So if you were getting your hand chopped off over here for a thing, you had to get your hand chopped off over there for a thing. If someone else was just fining people, maybe you would just find them or whatever, but it it sort of leveled out all of the, you know, standardized all of the punishment consequence practices among okay. other things but that was one of the things okay but they had to have courts they had to have people deciding right well, who, did you even deserve to have this punishment handed out now that we've standardized okay. it right so, okay so the court of the king's bench was like the king would oversee 
that court personally. It was for stuff that he cared about under his purview, like directly under him. He would deal with these cases. So in that way, you can think of it as the highest court, but it okay. wasn't really because, okay, this is where it gets a little complicated. The court of chancery came uh -huh. into being. Yes. And the court of chancery, and again, I'm going to just talk about this later, but it was dealing with principles of equity, not principles of law. Okay. Okay. So think of, think of it like a civil court. The okay. court of chancery is more like civil court. Okay. Right. Like you're suing somebody. You're suing somebody. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. And, and it deals with, I'll get into all of the chancery okay. court stuff later, okay. but the chancery court was like on the rise but you can imagine that having the king hear all of the legal whatever is very time consuming and no one would get their cases heard. And it was this whole big thing. So the court of chancery comes up and starts taking some of the pressure off of those. Mm -hmm. So there was this, there were all of these reforms and changes to the judicial system that were made. Initially, the king's bench was dealing with criminal matters. Yes. Hmm. Okay. And anything that no one else wanted to deal with and anything that directly affected the monarch, like he cared about this case, whatever. Okay. okay. But in 1830, which is after this, mm -hmm. it was basically a court of appeals for the exchequer and common pleas. Okay. So, so the court of the King's bench technically is like the highest court, but not. Mm. Okay. So, and it would have been, is it also like this today? This is very confusing. I just feel like, I mean, you're talking about all these things and I like, you know, I'm kind of blacking out because it's just, you know, whatever. But is this like a thing? Like to this day? Like do they have all these things? I don't think all it's exactly the same today, but I'll be honest. I was so mired in ancient and, and decades okay. old British patent law that I was just... Yeah. Although so to know. be fair, if you ask me how all of our circuit courts and appeals courts and this, that, the other court, if you ask me how all of that worked, I would not know either. So, you know, I guess court systems in general, I don't understand. There's too many of them. There's too many levels and it's just too much. Um, regardless of all of that ridiculousness, sounds like JJ kind of won this case as well. Because again, it basically kind of validated his claim to like, no, you can't go make my harps a forte, you know? Yeah, well, and that's fair. Yeah. Oh, one more thing I forgot to mention about his musical instrument inventions. Um, let's guess this was after this case. So in 1781, there was a report in a newspaper that JJ had invented a new in another new instrument. This is a quote. This instrument is in one in the same case, a harpsichord pianoforte Hautboy, trumpet, and kettle drum. It is a keyed instrument and it is to be played like a harpsichord. Mr. Bach is to be the first public performer on the instrument and in his concert it, concerts, it is to be introduced. I have zero details about this magical one-man band instrument thing, but I'm envisioning, uh, isn't the, um, what's his face? Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins. Doesn't yeah. he have one of those things with the drum and the things in his ankles and what, I, you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. That's exactly when you said with a drum, I instantly went to Mary <laughs> Poppins. It's like, I was right there. Yeah. I don't really, I don't know if it was a pro, I have zero details. All I have is like this one thing. 
Uh, I don't know if it's a prototype. I don't know if Bach ever actually did play it. It sounds, but but he and, his, he and his bros were in on it. So this is not the last time that we are going to suspect that he and his bros and some and his and some <laughs> quantities of alcohol were involved okay. and ended up okay. in a ridiculous story later. Okay. But that's what this great. sounds like. Okay, great, super. So yeah, um, now let's talk. So those are his court cases, and that's kind of all I can tell you about his life um, outside, like professional life outside of kind of his main invention stuff, which is why we're talking about him. But let's talk about his family because this, to me, was one of the more interesting things I read about his life. Oh yeah, good. Okay, okay. So I told you that in 1777, JJ had hoped to have his house ready before he got married like he had made this comment like i need it before i get married uh-huh. well, he did not get married in 1777 oh um nor did people think he ever was married okay oh so in the article i read um is pretty much my like only source the author found some more information about all of this okay there is a record of marriage of joseph merlin to anne goulding on september 17th 1783 at the Church of St. Savior in Southwark, which is like a suburb of London. Okay. Southwark is. And the signature in the church record appears to resemble JJ's signature on like some court document from like one of the cases he was involved in or sure. a patent or something. Okay. Um, so what we don't know was like, was Anne the girl he was going to marry all along in 1777, but then they didn't get married till 1783. Did he have another girl who got dumped or did like she dump him like we don't really know there's no seems, way that he would have dumped her that was not weird okay that there's like a what, six year gap yeah, yeah. A six year gap between when he was like oh i gotta have this house ready to move into with my wife and then six years later he like gets married okay um so there's a little mystery there but what's crazy to me is that jj himself kept pushing the narrative that he was a single guy which is why up until like whenever this article was written maybe 2014 I don't remember um we everyone just assumed he was always a bachelor oh yeah which if I was Anna I'd be like excuse me me. um so the author of this source I was reading I'll I'll mention at the end I can't think of it off the top of my head but it's at the end of my you know notes Mm -hmm. um she suggested that maybe he wanted to keep up the appearance of being like fancy free man about town, like mm-hmm. for business purposes so yeah. that he'd get invited to the parties and he could go be wild and crazy, whatever else he was doing. I don't even know. Yeah. Either way, it feels like a kind of a crappy thing to do because like um, yeah. they have children. What? Yeah. And Joanna, 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 whatever, was baptized on November 19th, 1786, and Joseph was baptized May 18th, 1790. Because, you know, we have baptism dates because they didn't write birth dates. They don't. Sure. Baptism. Yeah. But it was but usually shortly after close the birth. To, so, yeah. yeah. Close to. Yeah. On November 22nd, 1793, Anne, his wife, died, Aww. leaving JJ with a seven year old and three year old. Assuming Joseph survived that long, we actually don't have any clue about him because he's oh. not mentioned in the will. Oh, which seems to indicate he wasn't living, but uh, Actually, because he was the son. Yeah. Um, or maybe he did something super shameful, shameful and got cut out of the will. Like more shameful look, than the nonsense his dad pulled. Unlikely. I don't know. I'm looking at you, Jerry. Jerry cut his oh. thieving son out of the will. That's true. But we don't really have a record, but we also don't have like a burial or anything. So I don't know. We don't mm. like we have a baptism date for him. And that's literally all we have about him. Oh, geez. Okay. Okay. The plot thickens. Okay. In 1803, JJ put his will together and one of his chief beneficiaries was his quote niece, 
Anne. But that 100% according to me was his daughter. Uh, why didn't he claim her as his kid? Like, I, was he like, was he that committed to pretending he was single? I just have, I have so many questions. I have so many like, questions. That has to be his daughter. Cause there's, okay. So then there's also an Elizabeth Hazel listed as Anne's quote aunt, but we don't really know who she is either. His daughter must have survived to adulthood um, because she's in the will one, like one, she's in the will two. Yeah. There was a notice of her marriage to a Joseph Griffin on December 10th, 1820. Okay. Interestingly, I mentioned that because interestingly, the witness to their marriage was a Marianne Hazel, same spelling as that aunt listed in the will. So I'm wondering, are the Hazels maybe the ones that like raised Anne after her mom died? Like we know JJ ain't raising that kid by himself. Well, his dad didn't. And his dad did. Like, I mean, you know, I mean, so I'm wondering, like, did he give her to the, like, were Marianne Hazel and Elizabeth Hazel, like, I don't know, relatives of his wife or something? They maybe they, because I was thinking they were relatives of his wife and he sent her to basically be fostered there. They so were her, maybe they would, that, they would no, so Elizabeth Hazel maybe is her aunt. Yeah. But it was maybe on his wife's side. But then there's a Mary Ann Hazel who was um, the witness to Anne's marriage. Maybe Elizabeth's daughter. So, yeah, I so like so, a, yeah. So like her, it would have been her cousin. I just don't. I just don't know. We need some but, genealogists to get on this. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't know if we'll ever, like, it's so weird, but anyway, in besides Anne, his niece, um, he listed his brother, Francis, his sister, Elizabeth, and his half brother, Charlie in his will. Oh, so okay. his siblings are in his will and this niece, Anne, but He's I feel like that's his daughter. Yeah. But that, I don't, that just feels like, I mean, I don't know. Maybe he gave up. All, I, I don't know. I don't understand. There's so much, there's so much about this man. I just do not understand. But it's oh, like, yeah, I'm like got a list for the legacy. Oh boy. Okay. Now I know I just like skipped ahead to his will, but just to give you what we know of him between Anne's death and his death and um, like the, that in between. Mm-hmm. So in 1794, so she died in 93, 1794, there were like no ads, no nothing for any of JJ's inventions or any of that. Okay. And we know he suffered some bouts of ill health. Yeah, um, so okay, possibly okay. like took a turn for the worse after his wife's death. Like maybe he actually cared about her instead of, you know, pretending he didn't have a wife. I don't know. Hard to say. But then in 1795, he kind of just like comes back into public eye, things mm-hmm. resume, but then he disappears again in 1797, basically for two years, because in July 1799, he made a public apology in the newspaper or where whatever um, for being so inactive, but that he had been dealing with an illness. Like he doesn't go into detail. He just like makes this public apology for like mm-hmm. disappearing. Um, before his death, the last public outing he made drew some attention. A newspaper reported that JJ, quote, appeared in Hyde Park on Sunday last in a carriage without horses oh, no. and attracted universal notice. He kept the vehicle in motion by means of a windlass. I have no idea what a windlass is. Mm-hmm. And it went with tolerable facility except against a rising ground. Do you know what this is? Is this an invention? Are you going to talk about that? It is, okay. and I'm not going to talk about it in great detail. I will just okay. tell you that it was a, he called it a, he called it a chariot, a horseless chariot. Okay. How did it move? Like, what is a windlass? Windlass. I don't know how you say that. A windlass? It's like a sail? No. Okay. <laughs> so 
a windlass is this thing that they you would use to move heavy weights. So uh -huh. you've got like a barrel and you rotate it with a, like a crank. So you crank this thing. You might have like a winch on one or both ends. And then you've got a cable round, wound around that winch. And then you the weight goes on the end and you use it. Okay, so you've got the cylinder at the top with the handle and then like the winch at the bottom with the uh -huh. rope, right? Uh -huh. So what he, he did stuff like this all the time. This is one of his favorite things to use because he made it something called a gouty chair that used these, used double winches I, on both I sides. I read about the gouty chair. I'm going to talk about that too. But <laughs> he, so you use the windlass to, to, to do this, to power it. What you would do is you would kind of wind it up and use the tension to propel yourself. But as we will see, something that was not important to JJ was writing <laughs> down details about literally anything he ever did at any time for any reason whatsoever, which has made it very frustrating to piece together anything he did. So, but that, that is, I know what the chariot is. That's what a witness okay. is. Okay. And it was exactly as ridiculous as you would think it is. <laughs> Um, so I actually don't know when that last public outing was, but May 8th, 1803, he died at home. I believe it was a home. I don't know how he died. There's no details. I mean, we know that he had been having like all these illnesses, but like there's not, there's no record. There's nothing to like indicate what actually it was, mm -hmm. but he would have been 67 at the time, which, you know, for the 1800s doesn't feel so, I mean, so, you know, 18th century into the 19th, like doesn't, that's not too bad. No, no that's, that's good life. Um, but after his death, I think a lot of his stuff was sold off and his inventions and all that. I didn't really track it down. Do you know what happened to like all his, I mean, I don't know if you're going to talk about his museum and all the stuff in it, but like, I'm going to talk about some of that a little bit. Okay. And then I know where some of the pieces went and it's actually okay. pretty notable where some of them. Oh, oh okay. Okay, yeah. good. I mean, I don't really look again. I didn't read a lot about like what was actually there and what he made. So yeah, I have a little bit on that. Yeah. All right. So, um, that's really all I have about his life. So yeah, let's hear about these ridiculous inventions because they are ridiculous for sure. Some of them, some of them might be useful, but we'll never know because he was terrible at writing things down. So let's, oh, great. Take, a, let's take a break and then I will get into what we do know about his inventions. Okay. Okay, Rena, we need to take a minute to tell everybody about Proton Guru and the MCAT ladder. Yeah, we definitely do. It's really great. The whole idea of Proton Guru is academic accessibility. So at protonguru.com, you can find a free full organic chemistry course, a free MCAT organic course, and diversity modules related to organic chemistry. The cool new thing that just got added might be the best part, though. It's called MCAT Ladder, and it's an MCAT test prep course like no other. It's prepared by a group of passionate faculty who really wanted to keep costs low. The big thing about the program though, is how thorough it is with exceptional concept explanations and visual learning plus questions that are challenging like real MCAT questions. The MCAT ladder is only $500. And if that's not enough, they have a scholarship program too. So go on over to protonguru.com and check out all the amazing stuff that's there. With MCAT ladder, it's all about reaching down to help others climb up, which is a very badass thing to do. Well, Brenna, you gave us a really good sense of who JJ was and what he spent his time on. So now I wanna get into some more of the inventions that he did. And 
honestly, JJ is kind of a tough one for me to discuss because this is, I'm, I'm doing the science today. And usually we can talk about a lot of scientific -y things. The, you know, how do Cepheid variables help us measure the universe? What, you know, we talk about the mm -hmm. definitions, we talk about the process, we talk about the development of a science, whatever. So, but with inventors, it's not necessarily that simple because usually inventors invent a lot of things. When we talked about Hedy Lamar, she had kind of the one thing that she was really well known for, but most inventors invent a whole bunch of little things and then just have all these patents running around for stuff with their name on it. And it's this whatever. And inventors, I think also are difficult in that they just make stuff up because remember necessity is the mother of invention. Something is needed. So you figure out a solution to it and you have the horseless chariot or something. I don't know. I don't know why, what necessitated that ridiculousness, but possibly just advertising. I don't know, but they don't necessarily say, you know, I was having this problem with a thing and this is what I came up with to fix it. You know, all that kind of stuff. You don't necessarily have to do that for a patent. So I mean, once they started getting their stuff patented, then they would have to be a little bit more serious, but not enough to, for me to say, here's the development of this thing that he made, blah, blah, blah. So I'm going to just touch on a whole bunch of okay. inventions that he did. I'm going to go into detail on a couple, and then I'm going to tell the story of why he actually got on this list because mm -hmm. it is a good story. Okay. Okay. So besides the musical instruments that Brenna already talked about, he did, he did make things, which again, his dad was a blacksmith. So it stands to reason his dad made stuff. He made stuff. And I suspect that he studied practical science at the academy in terms of like making things, mechanics, whatever, because that was really his jam. So let's Seems likely. To, well, right. So let's go back to 1766 uh, when JJ was in London working mm -hmm. for uh, James Cox that you mentioned. Okay. 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 So James Cox was a jeweler and goldsmith and clockmaker. Maybe he had a shop kind of as early as probably 1751 in London, but how much work he actually did on his own is kind of up for debate because he mostly employed jeweler jewelers and manufacturers who made the stuff and he just put his name on it. Oh. Well. Yeah, so his shop, Cox, Cox specialized in very intricate, fancy pieces, and he primarily sold to the Far East, to places oh. like China and India. Yeah, it wasn't he wasn't making stuff for people necessarily where he lived in London. Oh. He was exporting a lot of his work. Okay. I read in a couple of places that his work actually balanced the British trade deficit with China because it was that serious. Yeah. This alone. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But eventually the economy changed as economies do. And mm -hmm. Cox wasn't doing good business with China anymore. So he sold off a bunch of his stuff at Christie's, the, you know, the auction. That existed back then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he started Cox's museum, which was housed in the great room at Spring Gardens. Mm -hmm. It was one of the most popular exhibition halls in London for the next 50 years. Everybody knew about Cox's. Mm -hmm. And when I say exhibition hall, think museum. It's not exactly the same as what we think of as a museum, but it was like limited or themed displays. Okay. 
So Cox's was especially popular from 1772 to 1776, and it's probably due in part to the fact that Cox was really good at advertising, which is probably where JJ learned it. So it was so popular that a limited number of people could get in every day for security reasons. Oh. It was also one of the most expensive exhibit halls to visit. So you would pay your money and go see it. But this one was kind of pricey. So high end people were going to this one. Okay. Which I suspect is how JJ got hooked up with some of these higher end people. Mm, okay. Working for Cox, he would have been a tradesman. Right. And he would therefore have been absolutely not running in the same circles as someone like the uh, what's her name, the novelist. Yeah. Or that or for Gainsborough, because Gainsborough only painted really important. He didn't just do anybody's portrait. He painted wealthy people or well-known people or mm -hmm. not tradesmen. OK, so right. I suspect that this job is part of why okay. he got into those circles. Makes sense. Because everyone in London knew about Cox's. It's still a well-known part of London history. If you mention Cox's museum, there are people that'd be like, you know, it's part of London's history. So GJ worked for him for a while. And a couple of sources said he was the manager and curator of Cox's museum between 1772 to 75. But I okay. think that timeline is a bit off the timeline with him, as I'm sure you found it's a little bit yeah. rough. Sometimes yeah. it's hard to, it's hard to pinpoint exactly where he was. Right. But, so I'm ballparking this. Either way, JJ was also a really skilled clockmaker and artisan, and he worked on quite a few pieces for Cox. And I want to mention okay. two because they're very well known. Oh, okay. The first is a clock called Cox's timepiece. Okay. So see what I mean by someone else making it and Cox putting his name mm -hmm. on it. JJ collaborated with Cox on this clock and it runs on barometric pressure, which is wild. Okay. So it works like any other mechanical clock, but it doesn't, what, you have to wind a mechanical clock. Like you might see a guy take out a pocket watch and like yeah, yeah. it up, right? Okay. Right. Well, this is not pocket watch size. Okay. Okay. So when the earth's atmosphere undergoes a pressure change, the resulting energy causes the winding mechanism to do its thing. So okay. it's still getting wound up, but it's when the barometric pressure changes and the clock will run forever because the barometer that's in it measuring the pressure contains 150 pounds of mercury oh my gosh that's not safe it's not the figure sounded outrageous <laughs> to me and i tried to verify that that number was right so if anyone knows what if, if i'm wrong and you know what it should be tell me because 150 pounds sounded like a lot it's a lot although mercury is really dense so i don't know Right. So, so I can imagine that the movement of that much very dense liquid metal would have a certain amount of energy that you could use to wind a clock. It makes sense on some level. Sure. Okay. Okay. But the other piece is called the silver swan and it is absolutely beautiful i will of course be posting a picture of it and mm. i encourage you i probably on patreon we'll post a video of it when it's working because it still works to this day what yes it okay, works cool. every day at two o'clock at the oh. bose museum where it currently lives oh. so let me tell you about the silver swan okay it's very different from almost all of the rest of cox's stuff and it closely resembles some of jj's other work so it's okay. technically cox's swan uh -huh. But JJ, almost assuredly, there's no way JJ did not design and make it. So I'm going to read the description of it from a very cool source that I use for this episode. Okay. 
So it's an exhibit catalog of works by and pertaining to J.J. Merlin. And there are like little descriptive paragraphs of everything written up. So they put some years ago, they put all of this stuff in a display about him. They came across his Gainsborough portrait and they okay. put hit that portrait and a whole bunch of his other stuff that were in various collections mm-hmm. together. Okay. And they put out this gorgeous book and it had a biography in the beginning. It talked about who his friends were, which is why I know a little bit about Gainsborough and that how he possibly met Gainsborough. Okay. And then there's pictures of these inventions that he had, people who had found things that had been auctioned off and they had bought them, whatever it was, and they Mm -hmm. compiled it. And so in this book, there is a amazing description of the silver swan. Okay. So quote, the life-sized model of a swan with silver plumage appears to rest upon an oblong sheet of water made up of twisted ribbed glass rods laid parallel to one another. The sheet of water ahead of the swan is at a slightly lower level than the remainder and the junction and the outer margin of the water all around are covered by rows and um, by rows in leaves of silver plate. Mm -hmm. Neck and bill of the swan are mobile. The glass rods rotate in alternate directions and a series of small silver fish seen between the rods in front of the swan move back and forth. The motion of the head and neck and the motion of the glass rods and the fish are controlled by separate spring-driven movements below the model, which are interlinked. A third movement drives a pin barrel to play music on a set of bells, kind of like music box music. Mm -hmm. In action, the glass rods turn continuously, the fish play backwards and forwards, and the swan performs the following routine. It turns its head and appears to preen the feathers of its back. It raises its head and turns to the front and seems to catch sight of a moving fish. It makes a lunge and appears to catch a fish, which is seen wriggling in its bill as it raises its head. After turning its head to show the fish, it appears to swallow it. This all takes about 45 seconds, but the speed of the movements can be adjusted. The music plays continuously and was presumably intended to mask the sound of the mechanism to heighten the effect, end quote. Mm. So there, okay. there, there was a whole lot more about that, but that was that's the high point. I have to tell you that as you were describing this, I'm literally sitting on my, like with my phone open watching this thing. And it's at once mind blowing and also kind of creepy. Well, so is the description accurate? It is super accurate. I really thought that it was real water until you started talking about glass rods because it 100% looks like there's real water in there. Awesome. Um, the swan's a little creepy. Yeah. Creeps me it's out metal. It's, But you don't like birds. Well, no, it's just like some of the movements are just kind of like, it looks like a robot arm. It is a robot arm. It, well, it's actually an automaton, which I'm going to talk about. Okay. But um, also, yeah, it has, I've seen, I'm watching the fish. Uh-huh. And then where's the fish go? How does it get the fish? How does that work? Well, so the fish is attached to the inside of its mouth. Oh. And part of the lunge is the, the end action of the oh. lunge is the fish coming out. And then yeah. when it swallows it, it just retracts the fish back into its mouth. It's kind of creepy too, how it just like, then it just like goes completely still again. I don't know. I'm disturbed and fascinated all at the same time. You guys have to watch it. You'll probably want to watch it more than once. I've watched it twice and I almost am going to hit it a third time. So should Um, we put it on Patreon or should we post it to our Facebook? 
I don't I know. guess, you know what, if you want to go find it and you're not a patron, you can Google it yourselves. Patrons will get it for, we'll put it up there for them. Yeah. It's I weird. do want to make a note that for all of you bird lovers and, you know, ornithologists out there. Uh-huh. That's not me, by the way, but go on. No, swans do not eat fish. They do, but, so that's not right, but. They don't? What do they eat? Plants. Are you looking it up? I mean, swan bird facts say that swans are omnivores and they eat both plants and other animals. Although on occasion, they may eat fish, frogs, insects, worms, and mollusks. This is usually by chance. So yeah, they're going for something else and they get a mouthful of snail or fish or whatever, because it's, mm-hmm. you know, there's a plant attached to it, but that's mm-hmm. not what they're necessarily going for. So there you go interesting so it's not a hundred hundred percent wrong but unlikely unlikely yes it's he wouldn't have gone for the fish Uh he might have eaten it but it wouldn't have said oh yummy fish and like chomp that wouldn't have been but automatons kind of creep me out in general so Yes. And because you have to remember that there, this was obviously the time before computers and put that in your satchel. Cause that's going to come back in a minute, Oh, but this was a time before computers. So this, it's not like there's a sequencer that is telling this to do it. This is a timed mechanism and it takes a lot of mechanical skill and a lot of math. And, you know, all, there's a really good science behind all of the stuff that he did. And, and it, as I said, the swan is on display at Bose Museum today. Mm-hmm. It is one of only two automatons in the world of this size and importance. Because oh. like I said, this is a life-size swan and swans are big. Yeah, it's birds. like you can see like the reflection of people like watching it from like the video I saw. And it's... Yeah, the picture that I chose that I'm going to post of it has like furniture in the background so you can get a sense of scale. It is gigantically huge. Okay. Yeah, there's a while we're on the subject, there's a there's a museum out on the piers in San Francisco, because I've been there. And it's also somewhat disturbing to me. It's like a, I don't know, museum mechanic or something. I don't remember what it's called. But it's like all sorts of like weird, old stuff. And there's some automatons and whatever. And it's it's like, it's kind of creepy. It's kind of funny kind of interesting and also kind of creepy some of them uh, and that's that is understandable let so me, i have let, a lot of mixed feelings about these things e- yes today we would back then it was a marvel okay nowadays with creepy. with it, it's a little bit you know we you wouldn't put an automaton as a special okay anyway since we're, since we're talking about automatons let me let me talk about okay. it for you. okay okay Turns out that JJ was was an actual wizard. See what I did there? Merlin mm, wizard mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. with automatons. So an automaton is a moving mechanical device that is made to imitate something that's alive. Mm-hmm. Usually it's people, but okay. not always, as in the case of the swan. Okay. Mm-hmm. So when I mentioned the other work that JJ was doing for Cox, it was mostly in automatons. Okay. In so and he so he left he stopped working for cox for a while he was going about his business doing other stuff in 1783 merlin got a space at 11 princes street off hanover square Mm -hmm. and set up merlin's mechanical museum 
So he would serve snacks. You could get like refreshments mm-hmm. while you looked at all of the cool stuff he had made like this automaton. Okay. And he charged only two shillings and sixpence for a morning show and three shillings in the evening, which is pretty oh. affordable. Yeah. Okay. All kinds of people came to see his inventions and automata which is apparently the plural a so plural. Is automatons not correct i don't know because it i read it both places so okay. i'm okay. I, I included them both to satisfy everyone okay. all right so one of the guests that came to see this museum was a little boy from devon named charles babbage I hope that that name is familiar. I mean, I know that dad will know who that is, but do you know who that is? Mm, I mean, I feel like that name is familiar, but I don't know why. Okay, you will in a second. Okay. So little Charles was fascinated by everything he saw and JJ noticed how enthralled this boy was. And so he took him upstairs to see some of his like super fancy work that Mm -hmm. he couldn't reasonably display. Charles Babbage, recalled the experience this way quote there were two uncovered female figures of silver about 12 inches high one of the figures was an admiral danseuse which is a female dancer okay with a bird on the forefinger of her right hand which wagged its tail flapped its wings and opened its beak the lady attitudinized in a most fascinating manner her eyes were full of imagination and irresistible. Okay. Yeah. So that's creepy too. A little creepy, but all right. Yeah. But the whole experience had such an impact on Charles that he bought the collection in 1834. Okay. If you still don't know the name Charles Babbage, if you still aren't recognizing it, he's the guy who is basically the father of the modern computer. Oh. Yeah, Charles Babbage invented the computer, the thing, the thing that I have, that I, I have a six hundred dollar one in my purse that in the eighteen hundreds. Mm-hmm. Don't worry, he's a BA. We're going to cover him. Okay. Yeah. All right. But I can't imagine that he didn't get a lot of inspiration from his visit to JJ's museum. True. So it it had a profound impact on the father of modern computers. So. Okay. Okay, but so all of these automatons are more like projects than inventions because he didn't invent automatons, he made them. But then there's other inventions, which is making something, you have an idea to solve a problem, you make a thing to do the thing. Okay, so let's talk inventions. Okay. And JJ did just like to make stuff. So there's a very long and very odd list of things that he did. I already mentioned once the gouty chair which was an early self-propelled wheelchair and not the kind where you have to like use your hands on the wheels. Cause of course, every wheelchair is self-propelled. I get it. But what I'm saying is, you know how you have like electronic scooters now that you like uh-huh. use a little joystick and whatever. Uh-huh. Well, the way that JJ's worked was that you had two handles on each side and the wheel, the wheels weren't giant. They were real tiny. And okay. you would have, you would have a gear system so that when you moved the winches, it would move the wheels around so you could get around. I feel like a lot of people probably fell out of them. I'm not sure. <laughs> but there is a picture of one. You can you can Google the Gaudi chair and it will come up and it is Merlin's. Okay. That was one thing he made. And that was presumably for people because gout affects your feet. So it was presumably for people who needed the wheelchair-ish thing yes. to get around because of their gout. Yes, 
exactly. Okay, did he call it the gouty chair? That's not a very marketable name. I'm pretty sure that that's how it was known at the time. Okay, oh, so, that's a terrible way to market it, but all right. But may, for now, but maybe back then, everyone was like, I gotta get my hands on a gouty chair. Gotta get one for dad or whoever oh, they were buying right. it for. Okay. Uncle, Uncle John, who's got gout, I don't know. <laughs> Benjamin Franklin. He did have gout. <laughs> was he and, dead or when did he die? He was in the 18th. Anyway. He was alive during this time. Yeah. yeah he he probably alive. would have been really interested in it because he used to just pray, pay uh, prisoners from the jail to uh, carry him around a sedan chair. <laughs> that is a true story. <laughs> Didn't you know that? That scene in 1776? That's yeah, real. I did know that, but it just makes it's just me a laugh. funny thing to say. Yeah. It's just a funny thing to say. Um, okay. So that's the gouty chair. Then you've got the a revolving tea table. So okay. serving tea is a big deal in this culture at the uh -huh. time still is you know tea is a thing then they have lazy susans well but that's a little bit you can't as a hostess you can't sit there and use your hand to like spin the thing and like you just can you know fling the teacups off into nothing and whatever well, i'm not saying like spin it like you spin the wheel and wheel of fortune but like well i mean but <laughs> what a rotating table is not like novel well, but this one was because okay. it worked with a foot pedal. Oh. So you would depress the foot pedal and it would make the go around for one person. You could serve like a service of 12 with oh. this. Yeah. Okay. Oh, so that was, you know, okay. so there, it was going to definitely make it easier to serve tea. Okay. He also made this gambling machine that when you put a coin in, it would play a game of odds and evens, which is kind of basically an early slot machine. Okay. Um, he also made a set of whist cards that blind people could use. And this was before Braille. Braille wasn't oh, until okay. the 1800s, the middle oh. 1800s. So that's kind of cool. Oh, okay. Um, you had the mechanical chariot, which we discussed. And he <laughs> yeah. did ride it around Hyde Park to advertise for his museum. Okay. So that was a thing. Okay. Okay. Now, he did get a patent for something that lots of us still use today or some version of it today. And that's okay. the Dutch oven. Do you have a Dutch oven? No. You do. I do not. You don't? You don't have a thick-walled casserole dish with a lid? No. Not that, you, not that I can put in the oven, no. I do not have a Dutch oven. Oh, okay. Of course, I don't either. Because I, I, use, I use an Instapot or a, 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 a Crock-Pot. But yeah, I mean, like I have, better. I've seen lots of recipes that are like, in your Dutch oven, I'm like, I don't have, I don't one. have one. Moving on. No, not, not using that one. Can I do it in a crock pot? Um, okay, so before I go into the Dutch oven, let me talk about the patent system. This is what John oh, Joseph Merlin would have had to go through to get a patent. Okay. This sounds like it's going to be a wildly exciting ride. I'm ready. Well, okay, so the 27-page document oh that I read God. on it was not wildly exciting, and I'm not going to go through all of those pages because here's the thing. Mm -hmm. Remember, the United Kingdom is not just England. There's Wales, correct. there's Scotland. Uh -huh. All of those places had different patent laws. Oh, and boy. filed it a certain way in one place, it, there were, it, it was different in each of those places. So cool. what might have been patented in England might not have been patented in Scotland. That's neat. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was ridiculous. Okay, so let's first of all, a patent is a type of intellectual property. Okay. 
when you have a patent, you're basically saying, okay, I'll tell you guys how I did this thing and show you the directions for it and all that, but you can't make it, you can't make your own, and you can't sell it for X number of years. No. Nowadays, patents come from a governmental patent office and all that. There's like one place where you get a patent from mm -hmm. in the UK or in the United States, United yeah. States Patent Office. We have one too. Okay. Yeah. And they send you fancy plaques. They do because my husband, husband has my husband has a few. Yeah. I mean, not to brag, but my husband's an inventor. I mean, did I drop something? My husband has patents. I mean, I mean, yeah. they do look pretty cool, but they, they do, do say they're like they're very United funny. States patent, blah, blah, blah. And there's all sorts of important words on it. And I don't know. Stuff. They're very, they're very fancy and official. And they and they were at this time too. Mm -hmm. Um, but in England before 1852, no one body administered the patents. Okay. Lots of various governmental agencies, departments, and courts of law gave out patents. Hmm. There was a whole That's lot good. of people involved when a patent had to get given out. Okay. Now the dudes running all of these offices were not professionals. Okay. They were not qualified to understand anything they had to examine and award a patent to. Super. It was a lot of clerks, which I think of interns. Mm -hmm. So how much work is uh, how much work is involved? It's like 10 steps. So and I'm going to tell you the process that JJ likely went through because every time the laws changed, the process would change. So it's different now. And like less than 25 years after JJ was doing it, it was different. But hmm. okay. But the steps I've got are accurate for JJ's time period. Okay. okay, so step one, the inventor submits his petition and affidavit. Okay. The petition was provided to either one of the two secretaries of state and included a brief description of the invention, the name of the petitioner and why they want a patent. Like, did they invent it or did they import it? Okay, remember, you can get a patent for something you imported? Well, remember that British had, uh, Great Britain had a lot of protectorates. There were a lot of colonies. And so oh. if they said, well, these people in India make this thing, they don't, they're not gonna get to patent it. I'm gonna patent it, but I, I didn't make it. I imported it. It's a little, it's not great. Not great. No, it's not. Okay. Either way, the Secretary of State would sign it, which puts it into step two. That's where it gets referred to the Attorney Solicitor General to investigate and report upon, probably a check that no one else had a patent for it or whatever. Like, does this thing already exist? Does someone else own this intellectual property? Whatever. Mm -hmm. So, step three, the report got sent back to the Home Office, and you would, at which point, you would get the King's Warrant. Okay. which is a document that's issued by a monarch or sovereign, which gives rights and privileges to the recipient or has the effect of law. So now it's saying, okay, this is going to become your property now. Okay. No one else has it. So it's going to become yours. Okay. And so, and that, that's the go ahead for the go ahead and draw up a patent for it. So the warrant would be signed by the monarch and countersigned by the secretary of state. And you're on to step four where the warrant goes to the patent bill office where a bill for the patent was prepared. Mm -hmm. And a bill in this case, it's a, it's a legal document. That's the actual patent and they kind of write it out and whatever, but it's not official yet. Okay. We're only on step four. Oh, go ahead. I know. So they write it out and then it goes to the secretary of state. Here it received the royal signature and the signed manual. Oh. Yes, well, the royal signed manual is a signature of the sovereign which expresses his pleasure 
and it's countersigned by the secretary of state. He, so he's like, yeah, this is good. And usually it, in this case, it would involve affixing a seal to it, making it super official. Okay. Yeah. Great. With this, with the sign manual affixed, once that was, once the sign manual had happened, it was uh -huh. now entitled the King's bill. Oh, yes. Okay. Okay. So step six. Now we're more than halfway done. The King's bill was taken to the signet office where the signet bill was prepared. Because you can't patent the king's bill. You gotta make it a signet bill. Oh boy. Signet means little seal. And the signet office is where anything with the seal gets shuffled. So the sign manual goes on, it has been sealed. So it goes to the place where things that are sealed go. And that's where the king's secretary was in charge of stuff. He got okay. all the paperwork and stuff. Okay. And so then once they got it, they'd check it over and make sure that it had all the necessary, like it had been to the necessary departments. Mm -hmm. And then it would get sent to the privy seal office mm -hmm. and the privy seal bill would be prepared. Now the privy seal bill has the personal seal of the current sovereign on it. So it wasn't just like the seal of the United Kingdom, the great seal, none of that. This is mm -hmm. the personal seal of the guy in charge or girl, mm. but it was the guy at the time because this is during Georgian history. Okay, so step eight, that privy seal bill is taken to the letters patent office, where the patent document itself was prepared and enrolled. Letters patent, and they're always plural. It's not letter patent, it's letters patent. Letters patent are legal documents granting the right to this intellectual property to the person who wrote the original petition. Mm -hmm. So then that patent gets sealed once again by the Lord Chancellor and awarded the petitioner. So okay. it's gone through all of the process, all the people have seen it, the courts, the agencies, the seals are all on it. All of the King's people have checked it, blah, blah, blah. Step 10, the petitioner has to submit their specifications, which is a detailed description of the patented invention at mm -hmm. the court of chancery. Hey, there it is. There it is. This is the court that's authorized to apply principles of equity, not law. Okay. Okay. So again, like our civil court, things like trust, land law, um, estates, if, if you were deemed, um, well, they called them lunatics at the time, which is, <laughs> we don't call them that anymore. If you were deemed insane, mm -hmm. um, if you, if there was a guardianship of a minor, like maybe, mm. maybe you were an orphan, but you had parents who were very wealthy and oh, you had right. a title but you weren't ready to be, you hadn't reached your majority right. yet, you know, guardianship of minors. Um, and of course, patents were all dealt with here. Okay. So, I mean, eventually the King's bench did deal with things like property law. The King, the court of the King's bench did deal with things like property law. And I, mm -hmm. it might have eventually included intellectual property, okay. which is why his um, petition that mm. one lawsuit that he was involved okay. in would have hit the court of the king's bench. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. So that's where it kind of that's mm -hmm. where it comes in. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and it was a lot more flexible than a court of law. I mean, if you know anything about even um, in in the United States family court, they they can make decisions based on what's going to be actually best for people versus the rule of law. Theoretically in a court of law, the law is the law and justice is blind. It's not, but theoretically it is, right? Uh -huh. So in the, theoretically, the chancery court could be more flexible and say, mm -hmm. I'm only awarding you a dollar, but also mm -hmm. this guy can't, you know what I'm saying? We're in a court of law, it would have been 
all of the money is awarded and chop off his head. You know, it's just, it's just <laughs> different. It was just a different kind of experience. Okay. But it, I mean, there are still basic rules in spite of the flexibility, especially for patents, because if you didn't submit your specification for the patent, then the patent would be invalidated. Okay. And all of that work would have been for nothing. Okay. That would be bad. It was, I mean, clearly obtaining an English patent was arduous, time-consuming, um, in the 18th century, when this is when we're talking about this in JJ's time, mm-hmm. it would take about six months to get a patent. Hmm. And by that time, someone else might have figured it out. And then he'd have to stop. It takes a while, takes a while now to get a patent. Mm-hmm. It does. Because my husband's applied for several. Mm-hmm. Now, the whole process did get better in 1852 when a new law was passed, but you still had to jump through a whole bunch of hoops. It's still, there still is like a process, but it's better than this. Okay. So hope it was worth it. Hope it was worth it. Because yikes. So what's a Dutch oven? Okay. So it's a cooking pot with a tight lid. I mean, I do know what it is. I just don't have one. Sure. And do understand that JJ is not the first one to patent the Dutch oven. That was in like early 1700s. This has been around for a while. Presumably by the Dutch? No, actually. The history of the Dutch oven is a story. It's a storied object what no yeah no they he some guy was some guy from i don't even know where was over in the netherlands but the point is the dutch didn't do it oh okay yeah um but jj was the first to patent his dutch oven not a dutch oven okay traditionally at the time it was made out of cast iron okay his was made of tin now, I don't know, as a scientist, you may be aware that tin and iron, <laughs> there's just from a, from a physics standpoint, one is very much heavier than the other one, and it's not the tin. Correct. Right? Um, but he said that it was good for roasting meat, game, and poultry. You could also bake a pudding in it, which is what they call dessert. Yeah. Now, since it was so light, because it was tin, Yeah. right? It was actually good for use in camps or on ships. So it was like a portable Dutch oven. Uh-huh. So he made a pot. Well, okay, but not just a <laughs> pot. Because as far as I could tell, because I was looking at that too, and I was like, I'm sorry, why is your special? Because I ha- I like I own several of them, and your name isn't on any of them. <laughs> I have pots, you know. Um, but no, what made his special is that his had a mechanical jack to turn the meat that you were cooking making it almost like a rotisserie. So think of a rotisserie, which is like a spit that you turn. Uh-huh. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so if a, if, a, if a Dutch oven and a rotisserie had a baby, I think that it would be J.J. Merlin's rotisserie or Dutch oven. Okay. So but not it, really a Dutch oven because a Dutch oven, you're not roasting things on a spit. But okay. Well, but you wouldn't necessarily have perpetually turned it. Sometimes you might just want to turn it over on the back side. So like turn Mm. like do a single turn kind of thing I don't know Uh yeah I wish I could tell you more about all of these inventions but he didn't write anything down because I don't know okay great okay so let's get to the final invention the this is and this is the thing that Merlin is really known for okay this is like the big one let me set the scene for you it's the 1760s 1770s and masquerade parties are all the rage and a masked ball everyone would get dressed up in a costume with a mask Mm -hmm. had to have a mask on yeah 
And then they would make a whole bunch of questionable choices with the <laughs> anonymity of the mask to protect them from the repercussions of their bad behavior. Uh, yeah. Think of, think of our current day Halloween parties. It was very yeah. much like that, but it didn't have yep. to be Halloween over there. You do it whenever you wanted <laughs> on a Tuesday. Didn't matter. Just, you know what? No, we're having this week a mask ball. Everybody get your, they would, they would wear these things. It was called a domino. It would have like a little just eye mask and then a cape domino. Uh -huh. and they would just, yeah, get your dominoes out. We're having a mask party and they would go <laughs> and debauch each other. And that was, they spent a lot of Wait, time. I'm sorry, debauch each other. Can you debauch somebody else? I think so. I mean, at these masks, at these masks, at these mask balls, you could do a lot of things. <laughs> For instance, is that proper usage of the the word? I don't know. I'm gonna need a grammar expert to let us know if you can debauch other people. You could debauch someone. Can you? Pretty sure. You engage in debauchery, so you debauch someone. <laughs> Are you, but aren't you debauching yourself? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't think so. I think that it's, I think you have to do it to someone else. <laughs> anyway, none of this is important. What's important is that masked balls were a thing and yeah. they were fun. And you can, and, and well, they thought they were fun and you could wear a lot of different, you could dress up as anything. You could have any kind of costume. It, just, it didn't matter. Just as long as you had a mask, that was fine. Okay. Uh-huh. So JJ was known to go to masked balls. Were they pretending that they didn't? Because obviously they knew who each other were. Brenna, Clark Kent took off his eyeglasses <laughs> and people thought he was someone completely different. I'm pretty sure that a mask would have thoroughly hidden someone's identity. Okay, don't get me started because that also bothers me. But anyway. I don't know, but, but that's okay. the thing because you were wearing the mask, you could say, I didn't know that was who that was. We were wearing masks and everyone accepted that as a, as a, as it was an okay explanation. Okay. So they just went with it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. So JJ also liked to wear fabulous costumes. And as you uh -huh. said, he was yes. known for being eccentric and doing uh -huh. random stuff at parties. <laughs> this party would be no different. So one of his previous costumes, a couple of them, one of them, he had dressed up as a barmaid complete with bar. Like, no, he had a, yeah, like there was a bar attached to him. And so, yes, true story. Oh my! People God. loved it. Um, oh, one yeah. time he also had dressed up as a quack doctor and he rode in in his gouty chair and he had this <laughs> thing underneath it that was like um basically it would give you a light electrical zap if he touched you with this prod it was basically a cattle prod but not like grow whatever so people would say oh are you a quack doctor can you treat me and he'd be like sure and they and he'd zap him with the thing what? No, yeah not. it's true that that people wrote about it we have an actual journal entry from someone about that happening that's that's did a they get zapped yeah <laughs> did that dissuade people from debauching other people Pretty sure not. <laughs> Pretty sure not. Okay. So, so this party that he was at today would be no different. Okay. I have no idea what was in his head. And I mean, I suspect the fact that he was a dude is enough. No shade on dudes, but I have a small, I have a small boy living in my house. And let me tell you what goes on in his head. 
like, why, why, how many times a week do I say, why would you do that? And he's just like, I don't know. Didn't he invent this shower slip and slide? Oh my gosh. I don't even want to talk about the shower slip and slide. Spoiler, good news. Spoiler alert. He does not have a traumatic brain injury. (laughs) And and he didn't even have the benefit of saying, oh, I was drunk because I'm pretty sure (laughs) alcohol was involved with JJ Merlin. And probably his besties. He and his bros were hanging out and some guy was like, dude, I bet you can't beat the time you came to the party like a doctor and zap people. And then then JJ's like, hold my brandy. And he proceeds to attach a couple of wheels to the bottoms of his shoes. So he gets his violin or gets a violin over from over by the orchestra because he was a really he was actually a very good musician. That's why he invented musical instruments. So he, it, it was it does not strain credulity that he would have had okay. his violin with him, whatever. So he he stands up on his shoes that now have <laughs> wheels uh-huh. like tied. They're not even like it's like he bolted them down. They're like tied to his shoes. And, and, and they're arranged in a straight line. So like inline skates, but not four, there's like two or three, you know, <laughs> if he couldn't find an even number, he would have had two on one and three on the other. I don't think he cared <laughs> and everything's going great. So he rolls himself into the party on his new wheeled shoes, playing his violin, which is totally an entrance until yeah. he realized And this is a quote from someone who was at the party that wrote a journal entry about it. (laughs) Quote, he he realized he didn't provide the means of slowing his velocity or commanding his direction. Uh So no brakes. Okay. He impelled himself against a mirror of more than 500 pounds value, dashed it to atoms, broke his instrument to pieces and wounded himself most severely. So so my son doesn't have a traumatic brain injury, (laughs) but JJ Merlin might have because yikes oh my gosh yeah so rolled himself and I, th- I believe it was a floor length a giant floor length mirror worth five <laughs> pounds that he broke yeah just yeah now oh boy do understand that ice skates had been a thing since like before the roman empire mm-hmm. but the idea of rolling skates mm-hmm. was kind of brand new when he did it mm-hmm. he basically invented inline skates hmm. But it was a huge failure because the whole <laughs> breaking a giant mirror thing kind of people put people off the idea. Yes. Yes. Fortunately, maybe because I don't like to skate, but for those of you who do, this is fortunate. Mm-hmm. Many years later, a guy named James Plimpton of New York City invented the four wheel skates that we think of as the, you know, the two wheels in the front, two in the back and, and the brake on the toe. Um that he invented those in 1863 mm-hmm. and okay. you can see his patent for it and all that kind of stuff okay skates and skating rinks and skate parties then of course were all the rage for a while and then mm-hmm. they sort of went out of style but as one of my sources put it this is one of my favorite things that i read quote in the late 1970s music poor choices and roller skates returned <laughs> in the roller disco fad and uh... yes all of those things were a part of the roller disco fad do you remember the Malcolm in the Middle when the dad gets into skating and he's in the costumes? Do you remember that one? Yes, it is so funny. It's that. That's what I was thinking of when yes, you read that. Very much. 
do you remember although i've recently been to a skating party for a five-year-old and put on a pair of rollerblades for the first time in oh i don't know a very long time and i did not fall how many broken ankles did you get none i did not break anything i did not break any mirrors bones or anything else that's good although i did have a little bit of trouble remembering how to stop as well because on on those rollerblades was it it's on the heel right yeah yeah do you remember our skating parties from when we were in elementary school oh yeah that's what i when i was at the skating rink i was like wow this is like taking me back to my elementary school days of like skating i can parties. smell the skating rink i can smell that smell i can hear those sounds it's a very and and i bet that the one you went to smelled and sounded exactly the same uh i don't know i don't know about smell i don't really remember that but yeah it was you know the like ridiculously awful gaudy yeah carpet yeah and yeah all the things i love it so if you're interested in more about roller skates and skating there is a national roller skating museum in nebraska in the united states uh-huh. so jj merlin was the inventor of inline roller skates but it would be decades until the idea actually caught on but he's kind of credited as the father like i mean he gets credited basically with inventing it even though it was a complete disaster yes all right so there you go so that's what i've got on the science aspect of jj he was all over the place so was my research but he was an interesting dude and he lived during an interesting time obviously Mm -hmm. and i just wish that he would have written more stuff down if again if he was writing a lab report on this stuff i would give him an f because i couldn't figure out Mm. and like there just wasn't good information on it so Mm -hmm. so let's take a break and get into the legacy section and we can kind of talk about some of those things okay so what is john joseph merlin's legacy does he qualify as a ba i think yes yeah for sure so Absolutely. So that one's that one's easy. I mean, just the masquerade party alone, that's 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 enough to give him BA status. Perfect. But what's his legacy? I feel like he would have more of a legacy if he wrote stuff down. Well, that's true. Um, I found this thing in the Bodlin Digital Archives. Um, it was like a broadsheet, but it was John Joseph Merlin, the celebrated mechanic. Um, I think it's from I don't remember now. It's 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 from shortly after his death. The author only lived to like the 1820s. I mean, it had to have been like within some kind of time. I, I cannot remember if it says within there. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, I want to actually read a few snippets from that mm-hmm. as my contributions to his legacy. Okay. So it starts with the life of Mr. John Joseph Merlin, supposed to be the greatest mechanical genius that ever appeared in this country. And then Maybe. it later continues respecting his abilities in general we are constrained to confess that nothing but ocular demonstration can possibly convey anything like a tolerable idea of his museum all his own work and then he like lists and describes like some of this so you got to see it to believe it yeah okay this i'm so excited about this okay Mm -hmm. he apparently had like a real fancy carriage and quote to have this carriage painted with various emblematical figures of merlin the ancient british magician no way it cost mr merlin last summer the sum of 80 guineas 
which I spent a lot of time trying to figure out the cost today. And I think a guinea is like 21 shillings and 21 shillings at that time was like more than a pound. And anyway, uh, so let's just say that today's pounds with inflation, blah, 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 like 10,000 pounds. Whoa. Or like 13,000 ish USD, United States dollars. Whoa. But I just like have visions, you know, like the people that paint their vans, like the <gasps> that's what I was like, thinking of with the carriage. unicorns and the wizards and stuff, yeah, like uh-huh. that, but on a carriage on a in carriage. the 1800s. I wish, okay, listeners, if any of you are artists, what we're gonna need is a purple Astro van with yeah. Merlin painted on the side, and then translate yeah. that to a carriage, carriage from the late 1700s. Correct. I want, like, I would put that on a t-shirt and sell it to you guys. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah. I thought that was hilarious. And Fabulous. also the fact that he got, went ahead and like went hard in on the Merlin name. I mean, look, if your last name's going to be Merlin, like go all in. Yeah. He leaned into it and that's great. I think that's so cool. Which is interesting because he was not English. No. So how did he come? I don't like how did his last name end up being Merlin when his family was in the Holy Roman Empire and Merlin was a British, very specifically United yeah. like British Isles character. Anyway, I don't know. Anyway, I like that he he went with it and had a purple Astro van carriage. I love it. Yeah. Um, further, I read he had his favorite horse 30 years. Aww. And to prevent, no, don't, don't all, to, to prevent any ill usage of this animal after his death, he ordered him to be shot, which was done accordingly. What? Why? That's not good at all. <laughs> um, I don't want you to treat him badly, so just shoot him when I'm dead. <laughs> what? Yeah. Um, I didn't, I didn't love that part. No, I that was no, bit. I take back my awe for I sure. I told you, I told you. Um, and then he goes on to say he was not only an extraordinary genius, but amazingly eccentric in his private pursuits, which I feel like is putting it mildly. Uh, yes. Oh yeah. This was like the year after, cause he wrote at the end, this truly eccentric man and original genius died in the beginning of May last at the age of 68, which is wrong. Cause I think he's only 67. The world is thus not only deprived of the abilities of one of the most extraordinary characters, but also very soon may lose the gratification of contemplating the various instances of this great mechanic's ingenuity. And then he finishes, or he goes on, having died a single man, he has left his property to two brothers and a sister who are abroad. His fortune was but small owing to his great expenditure during his life. Like, I don't know, maybe possibly on your carriage decoration. I might have had something to do with it. I don't know. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I mean, that's obviously just some snippets from it, but um, those were the highlights for me. And um, yeah, I don't know. Even within his own day, he was kind of recognized as being, you know, a smart guy you know coming up with having a legacy like it was yeah. it was important enough yeah. to write that about him after he yeah. died so you know so, it's a big deal. so yeah I mean I don't know I like well I don't like roller skates I'm not good on roller skates but I am good on inline skates so I mean I guess I can thank JJ Merlin for that I guess yeah because I, I don't skate either I don't skate on any kind of skates <laughs> but you know but I, th- again, I, the only thing that I wish is that I, w- I want to know more about the 
harpsiforte and I, I would just you know he because he invented other things that I didn't mention like he invented this system that you could call servants with that wasn't a bell pull because hmm. that was how everyone did it right. he invented something else I think but hmm. I, it was hard to find information. Like I just couldn't mm. find good descriptions of all of these things. It's driving me crazy. I, Cause I want to know. So if any of you are inventors out there, write stuff down because someday <laughs> someone's going to want to figure out how did you get to this point? And it will help them to know. So I'm just saying the process is as important as the product in terms of invention for me. <laughs> But JJ didn't obviously think so. All he did was show up with <laughs> wheels tied to his shoes <laughs> and proceed to destroy a personal property with them. So I mean, oh, yeah. maybe if he hadn't destroyed a mirror and had to par- probably pay for it, you know, we might, might have had more money at the end of his life. Because because do you, ha- I mean, because they didn't talk about money in those social circles. So how, yeah. did, you, how did you even say, I'm sending you a bill for that. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know what would have happened there. I don't know. No, but I feel like he probably had to pay for it. I, Maybe? Don't, I don't know. I, I don't know. Or did, or was everyone like, was everyone so distracted because he was laying in a pile of broken glass bleeding from various slices that he, I mean, I don't know. Maybe he they were distracted by the actual blood and trauma that surely accompanied this whole thing. I don't know. Maybe they were like, we won't make you pay for the mirror if you don't sue us. I don't know. Won't go because then they would have had to go back to the court of chancery. And I think (laughs) I feel like he would have been done with it at that point. It would have been six months before they got to his case. Gosh. Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't know. That's JJ Merlin. I'm so glad that we looked into his life. It was richer than I anticipated it being. So, yeah. So, yeah, definitely a cool dude. Definitely a BA definitely a good inventor and good with his hands good he was good at making things mm-hmm. even if they didn't always if even if the execution was a little rough <laughs> we'll say yeah awesome so sources um so pretty much i just used this article called joseph merlin in london 1760 to 1803 the man behind the mask uh which was um, put out in 2014 by margaret debenham um and research chronicle um i'll have a link there that's pretty much i mean i think i used wikipedia for like he was born this day Mm. um but not really too much and then um that broadsheet that i mentioned um i've got a source for that too um from where i got that as well but that's pretty much all i used like there's like i said there wasn't a ton on him biography wise Mm -hmm. or the like the other things that i could find that were biography were just basically you know is all the same details basically everywhere other than this source from 2014 which is when some of the stuff came to light about like oh no actually he was married and had a kid and it wasn't his niece and stuff like that so she's the one that kind of like dealt dealt with that and dove into that so yeah nice yeah I had I obviously used Wikipedia I used a an article called patenting in England Scotland and Ireland during the industrial revolution 1700 to 1852 Wow. Even for me, that sounds really horrible. So it was very well written. Uh And because I Googled, I literally Googled patent law, England, 1700s. And that was the second thing that came up. So I thought, well, if if he's going to be that specific, that's what I need. And it was, it was, it was easy to understand if a little bit, a little bit dry. 
Um, then I had some books. I had I had the John Joseph Mer Merlin, The Ingenious Mechanic, which was the catalog for the exhibition. It's a really cool book. You can get it from like a library or something. It's really cool to look at. Okay. Um, and then I got uh, this thing called Brief Histories of Everyday Objects, uh, Ingenious Inventions. I had a book called Patents. It was all about patents for just things and how they came about mm. and uh, the roller skates was in there but there were also okay. a lot of other really like the pez dispenser you know a mm. lot of other cool things were in there it was just a cool book there was a there was a french website called online stash skating.com that had an article that john joseph merlin was finally officially recognized as the inventor of the roller skate it was very okay. interesting so little sources like that just you know general history of things gotcha. um, so yeah so those were my sources oh. yeah. so all right we got a tease next week yeah do you have a teaser this time since you know who to expect and i did not change the person on you yeah um yeah it's not overly exciting but my hint is that you know i don't have anything like clever but my hint is that next week we'll be talking about someone that we have discussed in a brawl in a previous season. Yeah. Which we've only had three seasons. So that means you have two brawls to have to consider to decide who you think we're going to be discussing. But we're going to dig into this person's life. We are going to dig into it. Mm -hmm. I got you. I see what you did there. Right. Yeah. Okay. I like it. I'm excited about, um, I've started doing some of the research for that episode and uh, it's go again, it's going in a direction I didn't expect. And I think it's oh, going to be really good. Interesting. Yeah. All right. So, all right. So do you have anything else for this week? No. All right. Neither do I. So until next time, live dangerously, do science. <laughs>